Hi everyone, welcome to the fireside chat for the Think Anesthesia Conference. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Martinez, one of the speakers and also the Director of Technical Services at Jurox. And I'll be moderating the session with some of our speakers that have joined us. We wanted to give you an opportunity to ask any questions that you were unable to ask during the session of our speakers. We'll get through as many of the questions that we um, can. We have Katie Waddell, who did our anesthesia for emergency patients yesterday. Jenny Selpeter and Sheila Robertson, who talked this morning about how anesthesia starts and ends at home. And then Amanda Shelby, who gave us those great tips and tricks of anesthesia for everyone to use. And we're going to talk more about that here in um, just a minute. Actually, we'll just start with that. We'll start the question about maybe a favorite tip or trick each of you that you saw yesterday, Amanda's presentation, or if you've got one of your own that you would like to share with the group. Amanda, what's your, what was your favorite? They obviously were all things I think are really important to share. The lecture went about two hours and I had to really cut it down. I particularly probably use most commonly that catheter trick where if I hit a vein and I can't get a catheter feed, I take the stylet out and just leave that catheter in place and then attempt higher up. But I also use that flashlight trick on the larynx of anything really small very frequently in an emergency room setting. So those are my two favorite. But, but I'd love to hear what some of our other speakers yeah. might have, have an interest in sharing. <laughs> All right, Katie, I think your kid, what's your favorite trick after working in anesthesia and ER and cardiology? What's one of your favorites? Goodness, so many favorites. I think how to intubate uh, a patient on their back. <laughs> It takes practice and do it in that position. You can pretty well intubate anything. And I've actually taught that method uh, for labs to students as well as uh, veterinary students. Excellent. All right. And Tasha McNerney has joined us. Welcome, Tasha. And or is it Tasha? We're talking about favorite tips and tricks. And Amanda shared hers yesterday afternoon. And we're trying to get a feel on what's your favorite tip or trick that you like to share. Oh, man. Anesthesia-wise? Like yes. There's so many. Probably, I think I, I just, I don't have one because there's so many, in it. but I think for me, once I finally, as a technician started to understand positive and expiratory pressure and utilizing PEEP in the appropriate manner, that really changed a lot of things for me as far as animals under anesthesia and ventilation of, especially like animals on their back for long periods of times, or when you're doing these C-sections on like an overweight bulldog as you're always doing. <laughs> so once I started understanding PEEP and how to utilize PEEP, that made a big difference for me anesthetically. And then, oh yeah, one of my soapbox things is just getting people to use their laryngoscope. Like, yes. Just use the laryngoscope. It was a tool designed to make intubation easier and safer. So just use it. I think that sometimes I go into clinics or I hear from people and they say, oh, I can intubate without one. It's a badge of honor, but it's not. Use the laryngoscope. It's a, it's, it, that's what it's made for. And it's going to make it easier for you and safer oh. for the patient. So 
so let's we'll move on. I think for Dr. Salpeter and Robertson, there was a lot of discussion and has been a lot of discussion regarding gabapentin, pre-hospital admission gabapentin, and how that affects our patients as far as selecting drugs and doses of drugs and recovery times. Sheila, let's start with you. If you want to just give us your thoughts on how you adjust things and what you change and what how you um, change your expectations and what you'll see when a cat has been given a pretty hefty dose of gabapentin. So I guess define hefty dose. Oh, so, you, more so, than hundred mil, greater than hundred milligrams. You know, you get some of these cats who are coming in on two hundred milligrams, and just see if you've seen that affect how they recover, like recovery time specifically. No, so I just find it makes working with them a lot easier. You get things done quicker because they're not as reactive, and unless they have pretty severe renal disease. You shouldn't have any unexpected over sedation or prolonged duration of action, but just remember that part excreted the kidneys. So some people, if they know a cat has uh, chronic kidney disease, they will re decrease the dose just so it doesn't last as long and they're not so sleepy. But I don't usually adjust my pre-meds based on having given them gabapentin, unless they're unexpectedly way more sedate than I thought, then I might juggle like what I'm doing. And then of course, induction, if it's IV should always be to effect anyway, there may be some sparing effect just because they're so much calmer and their heart rates are lower, but I don't, I actually see it smoothing everything out. And I think some people confuse a very nice smooth recovery they think it's prolonged but it's not actually prolonged if you actually timed it it's not longer it's just it's not the and awake kind of thing and so that would be my take home with gabapentin and just it's not a miracle drug for every cat <laughs> and that's why we put in those great videos that jenny took at her practice of one that still you have to understand how to work with cats. And then one that was great on its gabapentin. So that's why we went through the plan A, plan B, plan C. I, I was told as a resident that the, the best thing you can do as an anesthesiologist is not try and make plan A work, but know when to change to plan B. <laughs> yeah. So don't make a badge of honor to make the plan work, know when to pivot. That's what I would say. Good one. Dr. Salpeter, did you have, what's your experience with gabapentin in, in cats? We do it almost daily. Yes, we do it all the time. So I think it's, there's a variable response you have. And what's super cool. And Sheila mentioned in our little lecture was that you can then record when you see how did that cat at 20 mg per kg respond versus, you know, I have some patients I mentioned in our lecture, I think of a cat named Spirit who he gets 25 milligrams of gabapentin. Now he has stage two renal disease, okay, but it's just stage two is creatinine. I think when I last measured it, it was 2.2, mm -hmm. but he is exquisitely sensitive to gabapentin. So he's going to be that cat that you gave hundred milligrams to because that was his 20 mg per kick dose. And the owner calls back and says, I'm never giving it again. It was awful. My cat slept for three days. And you need to reassure them that I'm sorry that happened, but your cat's one of those cats who just 
reacts differently to the drug. So we've learned something. And so now we want to back down so that we can do a good job taking care of your cat, relieve his anxiety and stress and take care of him and figure out what his ideal dose is. And that's what we did with that cat. And, and now mom's bought into giving him 25 milligrams and we do a half of a Wedgwood caplet and it's fine. So we don't really adjust our protocols. I echo everything Sheila says. We use what we feel is a reasonable dose. And, and I also want to echo what Angela said in her lectures about, this is all why I love doing this. And I'm not an anesthesiologist. I'm a regular practitioner. <laughs> is it's cooking. I love to cook. And it's cooking with chemistry. And we get to try to perfect that recipe for that individual so that they have a really good trip. And that's what this is all about, is making sure that it's safe and as smooth as possible. And I agree, Our, I had some questions in the chat about do we adjust or is it prolonged recovery? It's not. Mm -hmm. We're titrating our doses probably less than what would be in the VSG.org and we're just adjusting them so that we can then use that gabapentin cat who came in who's more chill, but still awake and then sedating them and inducing them and recovering them. And our recovery times are I think normal. Oh, that's great. And yeah. I believe we had a question posted here in the Q&A from Hillary, and she's asking if you decrease your dose in cats with cerebellar hypoplasia. That's a really good question. And I think I want to see what Sheila says about that. I can't <laughs> remember anesthetizing a cat with a cerebellar hyperplasia or distemper that I can think of recently or in the last several years. Sheila, what are your thoughts on that? Would you yeah. worry about pressure? I th I think that what you might see is more, they, they might be more wobbly. That's not very technical, mm -hmm. but more ataxic because they're already ataxic. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they get a little wobbly on the gabapentin. So mm -hmm. that might be what, but if it's, if you really want to calm it down, I wouldn't hesitate to use it, mm -hmm. but they may have more trouble ba with balance than a cat without that disease. Yep. Excellent. All right. We'll leave gabapentin behind for now. And uh, let's move on to, I think this will be a very interesting discussion. And Tasha, I'm going to start with you. And this is for our technicians out there. And, and someone asked yesterday that it can be hard to make suggestions on changing anesthetic protocols, say maybe based on something that they've learned this weekend to their veterinarian. What are your tips for approaching the veterinarian to try to make change? Okay, so I actually get this question a lot because what happens is people will come to conferences or lectures and they'll learn new information and they go back and try to give it to their uh, veterinarians, their staff, and then they'll contact me later and say, hey, they don't want to change. They've been doing Hydro Ace for 15 years and they've never had a problem with it. And so they don't want to change. And I totally understand that because anesthesia in itself is scary. And just, I think veterinarians, we are people, humans, right? We're creatures of habit and we find something that we like. And most of us aren't gonna be too quick to jump away from something that we know works. And the thing that I see it most, because I talk about dexmedetomidine a lot, the thing that I see is that people are scared to add dexmedetomidine into any kind of pr procedure or pre-med. Most people think about dexmedetomidine as far as something that they're giving for reversible sedation if you're going to do some radiographs or nail trims, etc. And in a lot of my lectures, I try to get people to think about using dexmedetomidine, you know, even low doses, possibly 
in place of acepromazine together with an opioid uh, because they work so well together, those two drugs. And I think that if you're not used to it, again, you have to learn the drugs. So for techs, I think that it's hard to just go back to your clinician and say, hey, I heard about this. It looked really cool in lecture. We should do it. That's not going to work. You have to, I think you always have to approach them in saying, hey, I heard about this. It sounds really cool. Do you know anything about it? Anesthesia has to be a team approach, right? It has to not only be the clinician, but it has to be the technician, if, especially if the technician is the one monitoring the anesthesia. They have to work together to create the best protocol for that specific patient. Remember, not like cookbook protocols, but they have to work together. And so the best way to work together is to go to your veterinarian and say, this is something I'm interested in learning. Do you think we can try it? And if their initial thing is, no, I don't want to change anything, then you say, can we look at some literature together? Can I share my conference notes with you? And I think the benefit that some technicians have is, especially if the clinician or that clinic or practice was the one that sent you off to go get educated and get more knowledge, then when you come back, they usually want to know what you've learned. And you can say, hey, here's what I learned. Let's check out this website together. Let's look at this video together. And then if it's something we want to implement, again, change takes time. As you guys in veterinary medicine know, it takes a lot of time. Usually I will say to my clinician, when I wanted to start doing epidurals, I said, hey, let's do one and let's see how it goes. And then maybe we can start implementing more of them. And you have to build that trust together with your clinician. And I think that some technicians or they come in, they come home from conference, they're like guns blazing, let's do all these changes. And usually that's not how it happens. So don't get discouraged. You just have to keep going with it and keep talking to your clinician and keep bringing, bringing some research to the table. I just happen to leave some white papers or some magazines <laughs> open next to the box of donuts and the staff break room. Good and that, so it's a slow process, but it, you can do it. No, I love it. Thank you. Amanda, what do you have to add? Yeah, really, it's about, we don't get a lot of school as technician schooling and the art of a persuasive conversation. And it's really setting the stage for success. And you need to learn how to advocate for yourself and for your patients. And that involves having an intelligent conversation and being well equipped with, with information to present to your clinicians, because at the end of the day, the legal responsibility does land on them. And so there's some anxiety associated with that, especially in a realm with anesthesia that maybe the clinicians have legal oversight and medical oversight, but aren't in the trench doing the administration in many situations or the monitoring. Arm yourself with the art of a persuasive argument and position your argument in a way that is supported by the literature and experiences that you can gather and say it with a smile and just keep at it. But Dr. Selfie, since you know you're in general practice, you probably have had this situation come up and I'm just wondering how you dealt with it. So one of the things that we've added over the past couple of years into any sedation or anesthesia protocol is getting input from the techs on how it worked and what they liked about it and what they didn't like about it. And that's been really helpful for continuing the conversation of how we can improve things. So I'm always open to what I can learn. And as Amanda said, the technicians are the ones that really have a much, in a broad way, a better sense 
from the get-go to the end on how things are going. So I'm open to learning every day. And I think that we all learn every day to new ideas and we tweak protocols and I bring things to them and they bring things to me. So as a practitioner, I'm totally open to um, learning new things and through lots of different venues, as long as I'm going to evaluate them to think if I, one, one, are they safe or do I think they're going to be safe? And it's great that so many of the drugs that we use are reversible, which gives, and I think that's important for a technician to know and to communicate, Hey, if you want to layer in dexmedetomidine, that's reversible or midazolam that could be reversible. So that gives me in that recipe idea, some more ability to play and feel more comfortable that I'm not going to do any harm because that's the end game. We don't want to harm our patients. We want to take good care of our patients and help them. Excellent. And one of the most popular topics I think today was how to treat hypotension. That's always something that you know we deal with nearly every day when we're anesthetizing our patients. And one of the common theme of questions that I noticed was when do you choose which drug? Is it dopamine? Is it dopamine? You need to go to the norepinephrine. Uh, Dr. Robertson, do you want to just discuss how do you approach hypotension and when do you decide to use which vasoactive drug? I'm very algorithm driven. So it's not just fixing hypertension is trying to figure out why they're hypertensive. That would be the right. first thing. And in the AAFP anesthesia guidelines that I was on the committee that wrote those guidelines, we have algorithms for all the common anesthetic problems mm -hmm. that cats have. And one of them is hypotension. So it, it's more of, so what, what are the numbers? Are you measuring systolic, mean, and diastolic? Or are you just doing systolic with the Doppler? So know what the numbers should be with the technique you're using. And then checking depth of anesthesia. And if it's too adequate or more than adequate, then you turn your vaporizer down. Because remember, the inhalant agents are the most cardiovascular and respiratory depressant drugs that we use for anesthesia. And that's why we do everything we can to spare using them. So we do the dexmedetomidine is hugely sparing on the amount of inhalant agent. So look at those things. Can we turn them down? What if the cat is not too deep? So then it's what's its heart rate? What was its heart rate? Is it heart rate? Is it hypertensive because its heart rate's low? And so you're going from, you know, place to place. And then you have to make a decision where are they fully, you know, hydrated before we started, or is this one that has a fluid deficit that we didn't fully correct? And then we go from there. And so it, I don't have a huge preference for dobutamine or dopamine. It depends what practice, what you have made up, but remember that has to be made up and it's not straight from the bottle. And sometimes I've used ephedrine because that's a single bolus. And, and in like super emergency situations where I'm literally in a village square in Mexico doing stuff, but we have basic equipment, neosinephrine given intranasally will help with blood pressure. If you don't have all these other drugs and drip bags and syringe pumps and, and that type of thing. And then if you can't fix it and you just are battling it, are we halfway through a dental and can we just go, this is not, we're not making progress. We can't do it. Can we stop and recover the animal? 
and reevaluate. If the abdomen's wide open and it's the middle of an emergency, you have no choice. But if you have a choice and you've tried everything, you might, or you should have a quick team discussion. I'm not making headway. Can we just stop and recover this animal and reassess? So not a simple answer, right? Because <laughs> not hypotension's never the same. It depends. Yeah, I think one thing that people need to understand is every patient's different too. And you may always reach for dobutamine in this situation. And you did it that one time and that dog didn't respond. And you go dopamine and it worked great. And then the next patient, it's the exact opposite. So again, you got to be flexible, adapt, and, and just realize every patient responds differently. Yep. So I mean, sometimes you'll see atropine do nothing. Yeah. And then, you say, then you'll say, I'm going to give some glyco. And someone says, why would you bother? Atropine didn't work. And you go, let's see. And then it does work or the other way around. And don't ask me why that sometimes happens. And remember the like glycopyrrolate and atropine don't work well if they're very hypothermic. Mm -hmm. And if they're hypothermic, their heart rate is low. And you won't be able to fix their heart rate until you get them warmer. So right. don't ever forget about the other algorithm. Is there <laughs> hypothermia? happening here and then is that why we're bradycardic and is the bradycardia contributing to our hypotension so the algorithms on the AAFP anesthesia website are things I've actually been quite excited to see in practices where they've printed them off mm -hmm. laminated them and they're all hung on the anesthesia machine so they can look through what's the next step and then it work, you know walks you through it I have that document on my laptop and I pull it out all the time. It is, it's an invaluable resource. If you haven't um, seen it, check it out. Just Google AAFP feline anesthesia guidelines and it'll pop up right at the top. And, and it's free for anybody. It's, you mm -hmm. do not need to be an AAFP member to download all of the toolbox that comes with it and the algorithms. And then there's a little pamphlet about anesthesia that you can give to owners as well. That's great. All right. Well, if anyone knows Tasha, we know about her love for all things dexmedetomidine. And so when do you reverse with adipamazole and when would you give an anticholinergic? What scenarios would you consider one versus the other? I'll say it probably depends on where your anesthesiologist went to school and <laughs> what they're comfortable with. Because <laughs> I've definitely had two different anesthesiologists have different comfort levels. But the last, the anesthesiologists I currently work with, the two that I both currently work with, are comfortable giving glycopyrrolate and during, and I explained this in my lecture, because right, just as Sheila said, sometimes that we have to look at, for hypotension specifically, we have to look at what is causing the hypotension. And if we think the cause of the hypotension is because of the bradycardia and then subsequent vasodilation, again, you have to know your drugs. So yes, mm -hmm. in the beginning, dexmedetomidine causes a really potent vasoconstriction. That's why you can see Labradors with really nice blood pressure, but a heart rate of 38. But then because <laughs> dexmedetomidine is a biphasic drug, in the second phase of the drug, as you get more central and spinal effects, you still get a lowered heart rate, but now you're getting a little bit of vasodilation, and then you'll see hypotension. If you're in that phase of the drug, then we go to glycopyrrolate because we know the cause of our vasodilation is that we have this bradycardia and we're going to have to work on the fact that there's vasodilation. Like Sheila said, you got to go to the cause. If I looked at that patient and I just said, let me give him a 20 mil per cake fluid bolus, that's not the main problem. You got to do something about 
the bradycardia that you now have. So that's why our clinicians, our anesthesiologists, if we know, we look at the timeline, we know that's the phase of the drug that we're probably in and that's what we're dealing with. Again, because usually in the second phase of the drug, we're also on what else? Inhaling it. It's making it even worse. So what we do with those, like Sheila said, we go through our algorithm. Okay, we're going to lighten up the inhaling anesthetic and we're dealing with bradycardia. We're going to do something to do some, we're going to do something to correct that bradycardia. And our go-to is usually glycopurely. If we were in an absolute emergency, if we were in an emergency in the induction area or if we were in an emergency intraoperatively, of course, we would reverse the things that we couldn't reverse. And then our emergency is atropine because we know that works faster. Regular run-of-the-mill anesthesia, I need to get that heart rate up. We go to glycopurely. Emergencies, <laughs> atropine. Excellent. All right, Amanda, but go back to your tips and tricks. I think one of the most popular tip that you shared yesterday, they got a lot of buzz in the chat section, was emlocrine. And so I was wondering if you could just revisit your protocol when you use emlocrine. How do you apply it? How long do you wait? What's the bare minimum time you find you can wait when using it prior to venipuncture or catheter placement? Yeah, I'm so excited that everybody really like grabbed onto that. I didn't realize it was going to be such a unknown thing. And I get a lot of eye rolls at the clinic where they're like, hey, we need an art line in this thing. Yeah, it's conscious. We're not going to sedate it. And I'm like, Imlet, and I'll come in 20, 30 minutes. And they already know that if I'm asking for Imlet cream, then I'm asking for like it to be covered in some kind of occlusive dressing. But yeah, my, my process in a patient, I, I do this for cats, pediatrics, geriatrics. Honestly, we could do this for catheter placement in any patient. Why wouldn't we? Especially with time being on our side is I will clip, remove hair from the site that I'm going to be stabbing, so to speak. And then I will probably wipe that off with just an alcohol gauze. I want to remove major debris. I'm not cleaning per se. I just need to allow adequate contact to the skin. I apply a nice big bleb of Imla cream. And then I really like exam gloves. They're readily available. I just cut them or rip them so that I can place that over the limb. And I just use regular tape. But somebody was chatting with me, like, hey, could I just use vet wrap? And I'm like, absolutely. Use whatever you have to hold that plastic and Imla cream in place. And obviously you want to monitor your patients. You don't want them to be eating these occlusive dressings and things like that. But I really have great success in cats and pediatrics and geriatrics. We would do patients maker implantations, like the initial jugular cut downs and everything with Imla cream. So minimal sedation until these patients are temporarily paced, heartworm extractions. You can really use Imla cream beyond just catheter and venipuncture, but obviously that's going to be its largest application. And then I tend to find 20 minutes is what I really like. Now I'm a tremendously impatient person. So if I have colleagues that are in attendance right now, they're like, she don't wait 20 minutes. I do that. And then I go get everything else ready for that case so that it forces me to wait as long as possible. I don't pull up drugs first. I, I get my Imla cream in place and then I go set up for my arterial line, get my pressure bag heparinized and, and set up my monitor pulled out. Do everything after you apply the Imla cream and you'll probably see that 20 minutes flies by. And I do find that that works really well. Now I know the human literature says to allow that onset time to be a little longer, but covering it with plastic I feel that maybe it's the body heat being trapped in does reduce that down to, to 15, 20 minutes. So oh, that's great. Dr. Sal Peter, when you're in your feline practice, do you use Emla cream and, and how and when do you use it if you do? 
Good question. We've talked about it. We have not been using it. We've had conversations about it and I'm going to try it again. We've trying to get my techs involved with trying to do it and they're a little impatient. <laughs> um, so that's something we need to work on, but I will, I'm going to revisit it. I have a friend who does use it in their practice, just the way you're talking about it, clipping and then covering and coming back. And I look forward to trying it. Ooh. Just to say that there is one alternative, which is LMX 4%, which works a little bit faster and there are some publications, but for people that are thinking or sitting on the fence, thinking Emla cream and then waiting this waiting. Yeah. There's actually probably four or five publications now showing the, the success of getting a catheter in first time, like the benefit of it. And I think one, one example was a central line in a cat when they're conscious and a central line, that's a pretty big poke. And with Emla cream, the success of getting in first attempt was like 68%. And without Emla cream, it was like 37% or something wow. from what I remember from the paper. And then there's another one that did under observation, they videotaped and did the cat stress scores. And of course the observer and the scorer didn't know if it had been placebo cream or Emla cream. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the Emla cream decreased the grimacing and the stress response at the time of catheter placement. So it's just, if you think about cumulative stressors and you can decrease or take one of them out, then it, it's, it's good for the cat and it's good for you. And it's good for the next time they come back because they mm -hmm. remember. <laughs> Very much That's so. right. And Susanna just asked, what is the contact time for the LMX 4%? So the LMX 4%, I, I used it in a research project where we were trying to place arterial catheters in conscious dogs. And we tried EMLA and we tried LMX. And we found that with LMX, it we were probably good about at about 15 minutes. And that was on dogs and everybody's skin is different. But I wouldn't really, I specialize in geriatric everything now. And like geriatric humans, their skin is so fragile and any of the technicians out there, it's with the really, the old animals, what is you almost raise the vein and you haven't touched it. You just look at it and it blows, you know, that like, I just looked at it and it blew. So I think <laughs> the geriatrics. And the other thing is I really, truly, I thought about it and then I started noting it a lot of the geriatric animals, dog or cat, are have some underlying chronic pain. So they're hypersensitive. Their threshold to pain is a little bit altered. So the sharp poke is more, is worse for them. They, it's, they're hyperalgesic. Mm -hmm. And so putting on the Emla cream, A, for their fragile skin, their fragile veins, you want to get it first time, but also that they may be more reactive just because of their underlying maladaptive pain that they may have. So just Perfect. for the, for the golden oldies. <laughs> so LMAX is 4% lidocaine, correct? Yeah, but it and does work. So if you're doing a dental and you're going to do bupidocaine for blocks, do you have to worry about toxicity if you're using LMAX to place your catheter first? No, because both with lidocaine transdermal and with Emla cream, there's at least one study in the literature looking at plasma levels of mm -hmm. the drug. 
and they're almost undetectable. Okay. And, that, and that has also been done with lidocaine patches. They, they go into the dermis and the subdermis, but absorption is almost negligible. Okay. Different if you put it all, lathered it all over a wide open wound, but mm -hmm. in, in intact skin, the way that Amanda described, mm -hmm. um, almost negligible uptake. And that's published. Yeah. Cool. Thank you very much. That's awesome. Learn something new today. That's great. Always. And Amanda, Rachel asked, how does that affect your sterile scrub in 20 minutes? How does that, the sterile scrub affect? Yeah, sorry. So when I come back to place that catheter, I will remove that that wrapping. I will wipe off the residual emlocrine that's there and I will complete my sterile scrub as normal. So we would do all of that application, whether that be to the jugular or wherever you're, you're placing your emlocrine for whatever purpose you're trying to accomplish. We would remove that and then do the sterile scrub after that application time has lapsed. And I will say, I say emla, I routinely use a generic variation because it's cheaper. So there are some other options out there. Uh, I have not experienced the lidocaine 4%. I'm assuming the M stands for some kind of emulsion situation so that it can penetrate skin. Because people try to make lidocaine creams with a 2% lidocaine and gels, and you just, you're better going with a manufactured product that has a carrying agent that gets it through skin. That's great. Good discussion. And then um, Gerard asks, and I can answer this, but that he needs a primer on capnograph waveform interpretation and any suggestions for a good reference. Does Jurox have an archived webinar by chance? Or I'll let Amanda take it away. She's too yeah. excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love capnography. So one of the first few webinars we did was respiratory monitoring and it's probably from 2018 or 19. And I've re-highlighted it a few times. We do plan, and I'm trying to remember what month I have it slated for, but I'll be doing a capnography interpretation like I did back in December for ECGs, but exclusive waveform interpretation, very interactive webinar. Probably, what do you say, Elizabeth? Is it August like August or August? September? Yeah, August, September. And always, guys, I'm over here just like, oh, what do I want to talk about this month on Think Anesthesia? And what can I get approved through everybody? If you have suggestions, you just email the Think Anesthesia email. I'll see that and I'll be like, yeah, I'll talk about that and we'll build something around that or we'll have one of our technical service vets build something around that, especially if they have a strong interest in it. So we're always looking for ideas and areas to expand, but capnography, I'm, I'm going to specifically address in an interactive, it'll be very interactive, play a video, you guess what's happening, I walk you through what's happening again in that September, August timeframe. Awesome. That's great. And then Tasha, there was one question during your presentation that you could address that's related to capnography. What is the relationship between entitled CO2 and blood pressure? <laughs> I don't know if we have enough time in this. Oh. Uh, <laughs> like a, that is a whole lecture in itself. Yes. Uh, and so I would tell people that just very like rough cut. You can use entitled CO2 as a rough estimate of your cardiac output. So your cardiac output mm -hmm. is one of the most important components. It's like a big important component of your mean arterial pressure. So if your cardiac output is not adequate enough to maintain your mean arterial pressure and you're seeing low values also on your entitled CO2, that that entitled CO2 is not getting out of there. Now, again, we could have a perfusion ventilation mismatch. We could have all kinds of other things. So that's why I say that would be a really big answer. Um, and I would tell people to visit uh, the Think Anesthesia and look up Amanda's 
uh, information that she has on capnography and how cardiac output plays into capnography. Uh, it is very important. And once you start utilizing capnography a lot, you'll be able to see if your patient does have a big change in their circulating volume. If you have a trauma patient under anesthesia or a hemoabdomen patient under anesthesia, you will see a big drop in your end tidal CO2. And usually that's one of the big things that tells me Ooh, hey, things are about to happen. Like, why did my end tidal CO2 go from 50 to 30 to 19 in a couple breaths? Something is wrong here. I need to investigate that. Big red flag. But yeah, I think that there's a lot of, it's very interesting how those things play together. But the short answer is that your end tidal CO2 can be a rough estimate for your overall cardiac output. Very good. <clears throat> and then one question that's going back to Amanda, because it's and Dr. Salpeter as well, do we play a lot of kitty dentistries. And then Michaela has asked when they can't have an esophageal temperature probe in place, they don't want to keep a rectal thermometer in continuously. Can you use that temperature probe nasally, intranasally? Can you and main and monitor temperature that way? Amanda, we'll go with you. I haven't done that. <laughs> I usually just invest in the $2 thermometer that maybe I try not to bring home and use on my children. No, I don't. I don't cross-contaminate between clinic and children, uh, or at least I don't think I have, but I usually just use that, lubricate it, don't get aggressive and get the body temperature that way. I also don't get body temperature every five to 10 minutes. I will get it every 15 to 20, maybe even 30 minutes if it's a longer procedure and watch trends. Um, especially in the conscious patients that's recovering. I think that can be really stimulating, getting a rectal temp frequently. And, and I'm watching the trends. If the temperature spikes suddenly, then I might start monitoring more frequently. Or if it drops suddenly, I'll monitor more frequently in the conscious patient. But, but yeah, just the $2 thermometer is a nice replacement for those $150, $200 esophageal thermometers that, mm -hmm. that I don't want to cross-contaminate between the hind end and the front end between patients, even though I'm cleaning. Do <laughs> you have a suggestion, Dr. Salpeter, for intranasal temperature monitoring? I've never done that, so I don't have experience. We use a rectal thermometer, yep. similarly the way you're using it. And I would be concerned sticking things in and, in and out of the nose, at least with horses, mm -hmm. I have issues with this, where um, and, and nasogastric tubes and things causing bleeding and trauma and that being irritating post-op in the cat. So I, I'd just stick, I don't like working on the bum, but that's one area I would go to for a thermometer. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, would also think, I would also think that if you're going up the nose, the tip of the cable thermometer that I'm assuming we're talking about is gonna be close to the, it's gonna be at the back of the nose. And so the cold, fresh air, uh, the gassy, the, the oxygen and inhalant agent is going to be cold. So I would say that maybe that you're not going to get an accurate body temperature. It, it's a little bit like if you have an esophageal one in the correct place and you're doing a thoracotomy, it's probably not accurate. So I, I would think that it's going to be affected by the cold, fresh gas flow. If it was placed intranasally, that would be my guess. So I like the regular thermometers and lots of lube <laughs> friend. Yes. <laughs> that's what I do. No, that's great. And then another question, related question, for those of us that have, you know, been practicing anesthesia since before capnography and pulse oximetry was widely available, and we were very limited in our monitoring, and esophageal stethoscopes were our best friends. Dr. Robertson, what are your thoughts on esophageal stethoscopes now and any issues related to an increased risk of regurgitation or other patient adverse effects? 
Okay, so esophageal stethoscopes are fail-proof, right? If you can't hear a heartbeat, they either fell out, right? Or you don't have them in your ears. And then obviously, or the heart isn't beating. They're like, how many dollars? Like to you know, attach them to your stethoscope. Mm -hmm. And if everything, if other equipment falls off, fails, runs out of batteries, the power goes out, that's the one dependable, fantastic piece of equipment. And you can't beat the price. And I use them routinely and I use them a lot when I'm in very large, high volume, high quality spay neuter clinics where we don't have all the equipment for every cat, but we can, we can buy $4 on anyone who's volunteering can put it on their stethoscope. And if you measure it from outside the animal prior, it should be in the, it shouldn't be in the stomach. So it shouldn't be through the gastroesophageal sphincter. It should be in the distal esophagus. So it shouldn't be contributing to regurgitation. You obviously don't want to put it in when they're in a very light plane of anesthesia, just as you shouldn't be trying to intubate a moving target and a light because you're going to get <laughs> and everything. So I, I think that despite all the technology that I've seen happen, and I'm probably the oldest one here. So I've been a veterinarian, I've been a veterinarian for 41 years, right? 41 years, right? I graduated in 1980 before all of these technicians that are listening in were born. And I still love my esophageal stethoscope. Even though I now could have cardiac output, I could pop into UF clinic and hook up, set up cardiac output monitor, or everyone should have one right, and, and use them. Very good. All right. That, that was a great discussion. And I'm going to, I'm going to finish up. We're going to go around the horn and everyone's going to answer this question. What piece of monitoring equipment would you recommend everyone have in clinical practice? Anesthesia monitoring equipment. I love a Doppler. It's like the music to my OR. When that thing, I just hear it when I'm doing things and I hear not only the rate, but the intensity. And to me, when all of a sudden it gets more faint, that's just like a, ooh, what's going on? And I'll talk to my techs about it. My techs are watching it, but that's my favorite. Very good. Okay, we'll move over to Amanda. My favorite piece of a monitor is a dedicated, educated, attentive anesthetist. Uh, it's going to be your most expensive piece of a monitoring equipment by far. Mm -hmm. So I understand that hesitation to always have someone dedicated to anesthesia, but mm -hmm. I bet your bottoms, you can't beat what a dedicated trained anesthetist can bring to your table and, and save lives. So that's number one. Now, don't get me wrong. I'll always take my capnograph and arterial line, but I got to have someone on the front end that's paying attention that does a good job. No, I completely agree. I'm probably just go around and just go ditto. But Tasha, what else do you, what other tips do you have for the best monitoring equipment? No, that's, Amanda took my answer. I, I put it in every lecture that I do in that there are no safe anesthetic procedures or safe anesthetic drugs. There are only safe anesthetic people. And the, the people monitoring the anesthesia are the most important component of that. So you can buy all the fanciest monitors that to do everything in all the different colors and, and that kind of thing. But if you don't have someone there paying attention to that monitor and watching 
that patient and putting their hands on the patient. That's another thing. I don't want somebody who's just going to watch the monitor and write down the numbers. I want somebody that's going, oh, my SpO2 dropped. Let me check that mucous membrane color. Let me put my hands on that patient. Let me see what's going on. So yes, a trained anesthesia technician is the most important component in the monitoring situation. That's great. Dr. Robertson, any other um, final thoughts on that? Yeah. If you think about the origin of the word to monitor, it means to warn. But as has been said, then you need someone to know what the numbers mean and then to intervene because the monitor will warn you, but it's the intervention and the response that will save the animal. But if you ask me what my favorite piece of equipment is, it would be the Doppler because of its um, versatility. And I've used the Doppler on everything from like a, a Joey that's still inside the pouch just to check a heart rate, to a snake, to a lizard, to all the way to a black rhino or an elephant, or even like in a walrus at SeaWorld, I'm like, where, what do I, and then you just literally scan until you hear whoosh. And actually that, in that case, in the walrus, which they got like, you can't see anything, but once you put your Doppler probe and you hear the whoosh, you can actually go down and get an arterial blood sample. So that helps you find an artery in some crazy animal that you've never done before. And you're going, let's be creative. So yeah, I've used them on, I've used them on manatees. I've used, yeah, dot is, is that noise, the whoosh. And, and there's plenty of data to show that people respond to change in sound. Mm-hmm. And act much faster than a visual monitor because not everybody's watching the visual. It's mm-hmm. you're tuned in. It's like the music and it's you missed the beat. Mm-hmm. That is the same with pulse oximeter. You can hear the beat and it gets lower and lower. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, the, you don't have to look at the monitor that you, there might be something going on that you need to investigate. This has been a terrific discussion. Thank you all, all of our speakers. Again, I really like these roundtable discussions. And I know we didn't get to everybody's questions. Well, I'd be happy to answer your questions. Please submit them to thinkanesthesia at jurox.com. Thank you all.